This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. Well, welcome and good morning. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis, and it's really good to be with you this morning. Uh, go ahead and grab a Bible and turn to Luke 19, if you haven't already done so. There should be some Bibles under the seats in front of you, and also on the back table in front of the sound booth, um, you'll find some awesome um, rubber bands. Uh, I love rubber bands, um, and you'll have a hanger for them. You can use one of these books to hang your rubber band on if you'd like. Um, we've got a Luke journal um, that you can have as our gift to you, um, if you're going to be sticking with us through the little bit that we're in Luke, um, <clears throat> has text on one side and lines on the other for note-taking, and it's that way through the entire uh, journal. Uh, we look at them like a field journal, so you can get one of those uh, to begin using today if you'd like. There's also this one um, that's like an uh, illuminated journal. It's got some different pieces of art ever so often uh, through it on the note-taking page. Kind of cool. Um, so if you want the mauve one, um, has art, you can use that, uh, but don't forget your rubber band. Um, but that's our gift to y'all. Um, we, uh, we typically work book by book, verse by verse. Uh, and so we've been in Luke now, uh, for 87 Sundays. This is week 87 and our study through Luke together. Um, and so we figured if we buy you a journal, it's good for three years. It's not that bad of an investment. Uh, so it's our, our gift for you. Um, but we've committed ourselves to the gospel of Luke in order to get a more complete picture uh, of who Jesus is. Uh, Jesus is the greatest person to ever walk the face of the earth. He's the most important and significant person in all of human history. History is divided in two parts because of Jesus. Our calendars are determined by his life and his death and his resurrection. The Bible that many of you are holding in your hands, uh, it is the best-selling book ever. More than six billion copies gifted or sold. More songs have been sung about Jesus than any other person in human history. More books have been written about Jesus than any other person in human history. There's been more paintings painted of Jesus than any other individual in the history of mankind. Even after 2,000 years since he has lived and died and beaten death, 2,000 years since he was on this earth, every one of us in this room knows something about Jesus Christ. So what's so special and unique about Jesus? That's what Luke is trying to tell you. That's why Luke wrote his book. That's why he wrote this gospel, is that so you would see what is so wonderful and unique about Jesus. And that's what we've given ourselves uh, over to this book for, is so that we can see a little bit more about what is so unique and fascinating about Jesus Christ. So I want to give us some context uh, as a way of reminder, or if you're new with us this morning, to kind of let you know where Luke 19 falls into the big picture. Um, so Jesus is on his way, uh, making his way to Jerusalem. And people are following, crowds are growing, um, and many are being changed, many are being saved. And through all the, the wonderful, amazing things that Jesus did, his teachings, his miracles, uh, the healings that he did for people, uh, it's got the entire region on edge. All these signs are indicative of the Messiah. And so they're like, man, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the long-awaited one? And to add to this potential, 
so many from around the Middle East are coming into Jerusalem because this is the beginning of Passover week. So there's already a buzz. There's already excitement. There are already many making their pilgrimage, their annual pilgrimage into the holy city. And there's this word of this political revolution. There's this word of the Messiah showing up to get rid of Rome, to rid them of their oppressors. And Jesus is saying, well, through a parable in Luke 19 earlier, he basically says, well, the kingdom is coming, but slow down a little bit. And you've got to look past your uh, temporal uh, type of hope, your uh, political, merely political type of hope. The kingdom is coming, but the kingdom is not coming right now. And the kingdom is not coming in the way that you expect. Because they expected the Messiah to show up and get rid of Rome. They didn't have in full picture a suffering servant die and bring about an eternal kingdom in the future instead of bringing all things right now. So he was trying to explain this to them, and they didn't fully grasp what he was saying. So he continues on his journey into Jerusalem. You'll see there in Luke 19, he rides in on a colt, and they hail him as the Messiah. They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, or Hosanna, peace in heaven, Hosanna, glory in the highest. Well, the Pharisees, the religious rulers, um, those who are the Sadducees, the scribes, uh, the rulers of the law, the religious law, they hate this and they come up to Jesus in verse 39 and 40 uh, because they want Jesus to clarify that he's not the Messiah. They just think he's overrated, um, he's overconfident, uh, he's just a teacher. So they're like, Jesus, you'll see him there, uh, rebuke your disciples, correct them. They're, they're saying that you're the Messiah and Hosanna and you're the king. Bring clarity. Let's be reasonable. And Jesus responds, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, before we get going in, in our text for today, starting in verse 41, in just a moment, um, there's an image that's been playing out in my mind um, and a thought, and I'm just going to say it so that it's kind of off my conscience and off my mind, and we can move on, because I can usually only do one thing at a time. So I've got to get this off my plate so we can get back to the text. <clears throat> A um, couple things. One, I had a really close friend uh, back in my high school days. We graduated together, uh, played ball together, senior trip together, real close. Um, he passed away in a, in a car accident um, on Thursday. Um, and somehow on his thread or something, I, on Facebook, it was um, when I found out through a, one of our other friends. So I started exploring kind of like what he's been up to lately. And there was a little post that said something like, the last time that you played in the backyard with your friends, you probably didn't know it was the last time that you were going to play in the backyard with your friends. Something to that effect. And so all of us, particularly the, the older adults in the room, we used to play outside, right? <laughs> um, and we had really close friends in our neighborhood, and we would play and ride bikes and um, throw stuff that we probably shouldn't be throwing. And doing things we shouldn't be doing. We were making memories. But then at some point, it was our last time doing that. And life moved on. And we had no idea that when we left the backyard that one time at age whatever, that that was going to be the last time that we played with those friends in the backyard. But it was. And I got to thinking, many of us have 
heard the gospel, and most of us, if not all of us, are going to hear the gospel this morning. And we don't know if it's going to be our last time. Not that you're going to tragically die, though that, again, made aware of that even this week, that that's a possibility. But this could be the last morning that you hear of grace and you get to play in the backyard of grace. The last time that you're going to respond to it. The last time that you're softened to it and not hardened to it. So if you feel anything in your heart in regards to what you hear this morning, don't assume that you're going to hear it again. Lean into that this morning. Press into that this morning. Respond. As the Lord said, if he who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you hear him knocking, open that door and respond to him today. Because you don't know. You could be numb to it the rest of your life. You don't know. Respond to him this morning, please. Now for our passage for this morning, Luke chapter 19 and verse 41. And Jesus drew near and saw the city. He saw Jerusalem. And he wept. And then from that crying and weeping comes a lament that we have in verse 42. That crying is a very strong uh, reference to to the emotion that comes along with tears. Uh, I don't know that I've experienced that except one time in my life, and it was on January 10th of this year when I got a text that said, Pop Paul's with Jesus. And I lost it. It was loud. I've never cried that loud in my life. Uh, most of my tears don't have volume. I don't wail. Um, on January 10th, I experienced a taste of what Jesus experienced as he saw Jerusalem. He lost it. It's very strong language. There, there is no stronger language for tears than what we have here in the Greek. You see, Jesus has been in and out of this city dozens, scores of times throughout his 30 plus years of life. But this time was different. As he looked at the city, he knew this time was going to be his last. Referencing again the passing of my grandfather, I remember the morning of his funeral. Um, I was getting mic'd up. I was seeing family. Got the kids all to Charlotte, North Carolina. Got dressed, you know. It was just, there was a lot that led up to that morning. Um, And we're uh, doing sound checks and it's just kind of busy. And then it got real when I got close to the casket before the funeral was actually going to begin, the receiving of friends and stuff. It's like it landed on me. There was a weight. The busyness kind of kept it away. But then when I approached the casket that final time, there was a finality that I was experiencing. There was a sense of this is real. Well, I feel like that's a sense of what Christ is doing as he approaches the city near the Garden of Gethsemane, looking out at the city of Jerusalem, he begins to weep. As I got close to the casket, he got close to Jerusalem, and he sees it, the finality, the weight of what's just before him. But more than the weight of what's before him, it is the reality of what is with Jerusalem, the city. He says in verse 42, as he's weeping, oh, Would that you, especially you, even you, oh, that you would have understood, that you would have known on this day the things that make for true peace. Oh, that you would understand where peace comes from. But these things are hidden from your eyes. You're not able to understand them. 
See, Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified or made righteous by faith, we have peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When you see Christ, understand that's another way of writing understanding Messiah. Through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, we have peace with God. And it's faith in Jesus Christ as our Messiah that we have peace with God. This was the work of the Messiah. This was the purpose of the Messiah is to give mankind peace with God. Not freedom from Rome, but freedom from sin. Not peace with Rome, peace with God. And they did not understand this. They only had Rome in their mind. They only had their 35 years, I mean 75 years in their mind. They just had their lifetime in mind. They didn't have eternity in mind. And there was an opportunity for belief, but now it's hidden because of their unbelief. There was an opportunity for belief, but it's hidden because of their pride. It's hidden because for so long they've been focused at looking at so many other things, of so many other potential ways of having peace with God, so many false hopes to peace with him. They don't look to, the, to Jesus as this Messiah, as the provider of the way to God and peace with God. They're so busy looking at themselves. They're so busy, busy looking at their own self-righteousness. Like, what's the point in looking at Jesus as the Messiah? What's the point in the Messiah to get me to God? Like, what's the big deal? I'm just fine getting to God on my own. And Jesus essentially says, because you're blind to seeing me for who I really am, because you've rejected the Messiah, because you've rejected his message, because you've dismissed and refused the way to peace, behold, destruction and not peace is coming to you. And he weeps. And as Jesus cries here and he laments here, he's experiencing a combination, I believe, of pain and anger, frustration and love. If you only knew, Jerusalem, if you only knew, but you don't, if you could only recognize, but you haven't, and the opportunity has come and gone. Peace was hidden from the, from the city's eyes. And this blindness sets in as a result of their failure to respond to who he is. And so darkness covers them. And so in contrast to peace, destruction comes. As the next verses will make clear. This cost of sin is great. The cost of their rejection of the Messiah is tremendous. He says this in 43, for the days will come, or this is going to happen. The days will come upon you when your enemies, those whom you despise, those who are controlling you, those who are oppressing you, when your enemies, these enemies, they're going to set up a barricade. Nothing goes in, nothing goes out. No food in, no food out. No resources in, no resources out. They're going to set up a barricade around you and they're going to surround you. They're going to hem you in. They're going to press in. They're going to seize you on every side from every single direction and they will destroy you. They'll tear you down to the ground, to the soil and your children within you and they will not leave one stone upon another. Not leaving one stone upon another there. It's a similar phrase used for the word divorce. 
to sever, to separate, to cancel. Because you did not know, you didn't acknowledge the time of your visitation or the arrival of the Messiah. You did not receive the Messiah on his terms in his way. And this is the payment for Jerusalem's rejection. The city will crumble. This vividly portrays the future attack that Rome will have over Jerusalem uh, in year 70. And the, the defeat is going to be complete. Nothing will stand of the city. And just a couple decades later, the Roman army will leave the city for dead. Because of their ultimate rejection, the stones will actually cry out. Remember he said, if these don't praise me, the rocks are going to cry out in verse 40. Well, here in verse 44, he says, essentially, the rocks will cry out as they crumble and tumble and collapse upon one another because they're not receiving him in the way that he's to be received. They miss their opportunity to respond, and the cost is everything. And what we find here is, that it is and this is a reality, I know it's hard for many of us to accept, but it is a fearful and dreadful thing to be responsible for our actions before God. It is a dreadful thing for us to bear the weight of rejecting Jesus. And proof of, of this rejection, proof that they haven't humbled themselves before God, proof that they, they have rejected the true way to God, a true peace with him, is they, how they converted the temple into essentially a religious gift shop rather than humbly assisting others in their sacrifices, which is how someone would have peace with God according to Old Testament law, instead of helping them and assisting them, they're capitalizing on this moment. They're, they're trying to make a profit by overpricing animals and, and overpricing the incense and having a temple tax and overselling uh, or selling overpriced on a little knickknacks like postcards, keychains, and whatever pieces of wood they might have had with cool inscriptions. They totally, they're totally missing the point of the temple they're missing the point of the spirit that should be among those who are drawing near to have peace with God. And he entered the temple and he began, verse 45, began to drive out those who sold saying, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have fashioned it and formed it. You have made it into a hideout for bandits. You've made it into this den of robbers, a home for Outlaw activity. Jesus here is consumed with the holy zeal. He's consumed with the righteous anger. And he overturns tables and chairs and throws out merchants and customers. And then he begins to teach, it tells us. Imagine that. This is fascinating. This is not normal. It's not normal for there to be business as usual and one guy come in and kick everybody out and begin lecturing. You have to admit that if this happened, as the Bible tells us it has happened, that that should tell us something about the power of Jesus, his, his physical power, his, his poise, his authority, the way that he would speak, the way that he handled himself for grown men and women to be kicked out of their place of business. And then he sets himself up a table, if you will, and begins 
teaching them. Fascinating. The authority of Jesus. There's nobody like him. And then we're only given a really small picture, a really brief summary of what he taught in the temple that day. You see, the temple was to be used to relate vertically to God through sacrifices, through prayer, through incense and whatnot. But these religious guys were using it uh, for only relating horizontally, pretending to have concern for others, pretending to care for them and how they approach God and helping them with their sacrifices. But all they're doing is cashing in. They're exploiting the poor. They're, they're, they're exploiting the marginalized and the vulnerable. They're using their position uh, to leverage it for personal gain in their pocketbooks. They were taking those who were there to relate with God and using it for their own gain. And he says, my house is not to be used this way. And he actually quotes a verse, a couple of verses, Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7, declaring the temple to be his house. My house shall be a house of prayer. You guys have made it a hangout for bandits and a den of robbers. He, he declares that it's his house. And in doing so, he's essentially saying that he is the Lord of the temple the temple of God, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of the God of Abraham, the temple of the fear of Isaac, the, the temple of the wrestler with Jacob. That's him. That's what he's saying is, is in himself, his position, his Lord. He's embracing the fact that he is the promised one, the Messiah. This is my house. This is my temple. And he calls them robbers addressing that unnecessary temple tax that they were charging in order to get rich, robbing God also of his glory, not just people of their money, but robbing God of his glory, the intended purposes of his house, the temple. So he clears the temple and the religious cats, man, the, the chief priests, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the other religious people, they hate this. He's got to be stopped. This is too much. And the Romans who are, you know, they're, they're the ones who are controlling Jerusalem at this point, Right? They're ready to jump in at the opportunity uh, to enforce any brutality. They're looking for any civil instability to prove that we are wrong. But then the common people, man, they love what they're seeing. Jesus is no ordinary guy, and he's shaking things up, and he's putting these religious people in their place. This is not normal Passover week. This has, got, this has got everybody on edge. There's something in the air. And there was always this assumption that there will be this sort of, this vibe around the city when the Messiah would show up. This wasn't like last year or the year before. This Passover week is different. You can just feel it. Verse 47, 48, he was teaching every day in the temple leading up to his arrest. And the chief priests and the scribes the high priest, the experts of the law, the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. Their chief desire was to have him killed. But they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. The people were listening. The people were thinking. The people were considering the things that he was saying. So at this point, the only thing keeping Jesus safe from arrest 
is his popularity. They can't get him alone, but they do eventually, as we'll find out. Through a betrayal of a really close friend named Judas, they find him at night in a garden while he's praying, and they do arrest him. But for now, his popularity is keeping him from this possibility. But here in our text this morning, what we see about Jesus is his heart. And his heart is open and on full display for us. He looks at the city of Jerusalem and says, Jerusalem, oh, the potential, the, the, the opportunities, the, the many, many times that you had a chance to listen, to open the door and to receive, but you didn't. You, you, you twisted and you distorted so much of God's law and so much of his word. You've, you've ignored, you've rejected, and you've hated the words that I've given you, the words of the Messiah. You've even taken the holy temple and converted it into a stock market exchange room for you to get rich. You've made what's supposed to be a place of prayer and hearing from God. You've made it into this get rich sort of pyramid scheme. And in doing so, really, you've already destroyed the temple. You've already destroyed the temple. One day, the temple will be destroyed physically. But the essence, the sweetness of the temple, you've already destroyed by your pride and your greed and your self-righteousness. And Jesus says that they're going to be destroyed for their rejection of the truth. And they respond by wanting to destroy Jesus. This is so often how we are. Let's not just look at them and think, man, that's crazy. Let's look in the mirror and say, man, that's crazy. We desire truth. We can certainly handle the truth. We've been built to handle truth if we would humble ourselves. You know, one of our problems is that we naturally, instinctively, we reject something until it makes sense to us or until we like it. For most of us, anything new or, or different is shunned until we can make sense of it. So we desire to hear from God. We desire to know him, to follow him and his way. But as soon as his way goes a different direction than our way, as soon as his way and his word goes different to us, our plan, our feelings, and our hopes, as soon as his way goes against what we feel is best or good or fair, we so quickly walk away. We so quickly seek out a way for him to be destroyed. We so quickly try to silence him in our mind, in our heart. We want to unhear it, unread what we just read, unhear what we've just heard. I know that we've banked a lot on science. We've banked a lot on experiences and now we bank so much on our feelings, but we've got to be really careful. We've got to be very careful because the Bible tells us, the Bible clearly warns us that there's a way that seems right and it's not. Proverbs chapter 14 verse 12 says, there is a way that makes sense. There is a way that seems right. There's a way that just, yeah, yeah. Of course, this feels right. But in the end, it is the way of death. There is a way that seems right to life. There's a way to life that seems right, but in the end, it is actually the way to death. Proverbs chapter 3 helps us. 
It says, trust in the Lord with everything, with all of who you are. Give all yourself to him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on what makes sense. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and not what makes sense to you. And he will direct your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. In other words, check everything that feels right. Check everything that you believe to be true. Check it with Scripture. Check it with the Bible. Check it with God and what he has spoken. And let his word be bigger than yours. Be not wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord. Tread lightly in the pages of Scripture. And turn away from evil. Here's why. This will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. That's not language we use, but it is exactly what every one of us in this room desire. We desire refreshment to our bones and healing to our flesh. Every single one of us. And the way to that is not going into the way that feels right necessarily. But the way to that is not being wise in your own eyes, not leaning on your own understanding, but going to the Lord and say, God, how is it that you would like for me to believe? How should I move forward? What should I believe? How should I feel about what I feel? We must base our lives on the rock of Christ. We must bank our lives on the unshakable word of God. Friend, it is only then that our lives will make sense. But we have to lose control. We have to submit. We have to surrender. We have to let go of what seems right, but we find life. So I'm asking you this morning not to do what Jerusalem did. You see, Jerusalem didn't do this. Jerusalem did not surrender. I'm asking you to surrender to him. And in doing so, you're going to find a million blessings, including contentment and happiness and joy and comfort and peace. All the things you're desiring is found right here with Jesus Christ in a restored relationship with God on his terms. Where he's acknowledged and he guides but do you see how much you and I can often be like these religious leaders? We want control. We want to call the shots. We want power. We want to make sure that, that things are happening according to our liking, according to our way. We know what's best, don't we? My goodness. And so we lean wholeheartedly on our understanding. We're wise in our own eyes. We're following the way that seems right. And it would just be so much easier if God would just get with it and see it my way. If he would just humble himself and let me lead, what's wrong with him? Humble yourself. Follow me for once. And in the gospel, you know what we find? The gospel tells us that he did humble himself. Philippians 2 says, let each of you not look only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. And have this mind in you, 
which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped or held onto or leveraged, but instead emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why would he do that? So that, Colossians 1, 21 and 22, you who were once alienated and separated from God, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he could now reconcile in his body of flesh by his death so that he could present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God so that you could be justified. He humbled himself and experienced humility in order for you to be rejoined with God so that you could be justified, so that you could be declared righteous, so that you could be made righteous. How does he do this? Well, Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says that we who were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses and our sins by canceling the record of debt that we, that we gathered, that we incurred, that stood against us between us and God and all its legal ramifications and demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now we hear this and we must be humbled by it and not hardened to it. Humble yourself before God and receive the gracious work of the Messiah on his terms in his way. Jerusalem did not. Be made alive, be justified, be forgiven, and be reconciled. And friend, as we're considering the real Jesus, be sure to consider this passage when you build out your idea of who Jesus was and what he's like. Jesus does not like people to suffer. He doesn't like for people to suffer for their sins. He takes no pleasure in that. He came to earth so that they wouldn't have to suffer that. He came so that they wouldn't have to suffer at all. And God desires that all come to repentance and a saving knowledge of Christ as Lord. So I encourage you, if you're wrestling with who Jesus is and you don't like the idea of Jesus, look at this Jesus. Look at him in the eyes. Look at the swollen, puffy eyes of Jesus, eyes deep with redness, all around the eyes and face feeling sensitive and raw as salty tears have been wiped away over and over again as he's weeping over the city of Jerusalem that's damned for destruction. Do you see him caring, concerned, over their unbelief and their rejection. That's not swagger. That's not strutting into the city. Y'all are getting what's yours. He's weeping over the fact of what he knows is going to happen. He's weeping over their unbelief and their rejection, not weeping over what he has to endure, the scourging, the crucifixion. That's what we'd be concerned with. He's concerned with their rejection. That's the real Jesus. So what you're walking through, Jesus doesn't want you walking through it alone without hope. 
He's come to walk through it with you. What you're facing, he sees no reason why you're facing it by yourself. He's come to walk that way with you. He's come to save you. He's come to restore you back to God, your most necessary relationship. He's come to restore that for you. He's come to give you life. He's come to give you the great comforter of the Holy Spirit. He wants to wrap his arms around you. He wants to care for you. He wants to speak over you words of of compassion and concern. Hear him, parallel passage in Matthew 23. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Oh, how often I would have gathered you you're like children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were simply not willing. You weren't willing. Breaking it into our modern day vernacular and understanding, oh, it would be like this. Oh, dear friend, The very one created in God's image for God's glory, you have rejected your maker and you're running for your purpose. You're running from your purpose. How often God desires to gather you in his arms and to gently lead you and hold you so near to his heart, but you're not willing. You're not willing. And rather than running to the thing that will save you, you're running to the very thing that's killing you. In the midst of this struggle, you hear Jesus step out, not to the city of Jerusalem, but to the edge of your life and your heart, and he says, come to me. Come to me. All you who are heavy laden, and I'm going to give you rest. There's no bait and switch. Here, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle. I'm lowly in heart, and you will find, you'll find rest for your souls. My burden is not a trick. My burden is easy. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. So those who aren't Christians in this room, those who aren't Christians yet, ask Jesus to be your Savior. Ask him for the faith needed to receive him on his terms, in his way. Ask him to make your heart different than what it was for the Jews back in this day. Ask him to soften you to him, to receive him and not reject him. Ask him for the needed humility to see him for who he really is. Ask him, and he will. He will. And for those who are Christians already, run back into the arms of Jesus. Run back into the arms of God. Run before there's a troublesome reason why. Run before there's a catastrophe. Run to his arms because he's the best. Run to him because he's the greatest one you could ever run towards. Run to him because he's gracious. Run to him because he's kind. Run to him because he loves you and he cares. In fact, develop a shortcut to his arms. Develop a shortcut to closeness with him. Get rid of those proud scenic routes that you take and the long, unnecessary, foolish detours and learn to run quickly and directly to God your Father, both in your day of trouble and in your day of peace. We do this by repenting and repenting early and often. We do this by walking in the light and no longer trying to have a certain private life that no one knows about. We we do this by living in open confession of our sin And by doing all things necessary to stop hiding and stop justifying our sinfulness. Learn to run to him. Learn to stay with him. And borrowing from the the story of the temple and Jesus clearing house, ask Jesus to come into who you are in a certain way like he did into the temple. Ask him to come into you and leave no stone unturned and no table upright. Ask him to come and set things right in your life according to his preferences. 
But don't worry, as he comes to you and begins to move things around, he's not doing these things to damage you. He's caring for you. This is tenderness. This is kindness. And as he begins to move your heart's furniture according to his liking, know that that's grace. And remember that he's a God, merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Humble yourself and ask him to have his way with you. Ask him to give you the grace and faith needed to trust him in this way. Ask him for faith needed to give you or to give him, uh, to be able to follow him in complete surrender, giving him total access to all of who you are. All of who you are. Your marriage, your gender, what your eyes see in secret, your hate, your hope, what you really feel, the things that you really fear, your private life that no one in this room knows about. Give him your past, your future. Trust him with your rebellious child. Trust him with your finances. The desire for a spouse, the desire for a child, a desire for health, desire that you have for your addictions, your longings, Whatever it is that's a conflict between your desires and the way that God says in his word that it must be, give him complete and total access to that. Trust him with that. Trust him with everything else and follow him in obedience regardless of if it seems right to you. Faith is often what doesn't at first make sense to us. And we follow him by faith. And in doing so, trusting him in this way with these things, we find joy and contentment, happiness and satisfaction. So I encourage you to give him access to everything and who you are. Trust him with all of it. This is part of what it means when he says, deny yourself and follow me. Give him complete and total control. Tell him he can change anything. When he entered the temple and started, uh, we'll be gracious here, uh, organizing things, all right, Give him the right to organize things. And when you feel like he shouldn't touch that table, ask him for faith to trust that he should move that table. Ask him to remove anything, to replace and reorganize everything in your life. Friends, this is what Christians do. Happy Christians welcome this. They, if they're honest, they hate it. It's not comfortable. It's not easy. But they learn to trust him through it and they learn to love it. He's their interior designer. He's making things in their life according to his liking. And they're learning to be comfortable with it. Unhappy Christians, they ask for this, but then as soon as he turns around, they move things back the way it was before. Moments of controversy or catastrophe or conflict he comes in, moves things around. As soon as he leaves, things get normal. They go right back to the way they were. This is a miserable person, and this is a hypocrite. If this is you, ask for needed humility to trust him to keep the furniture where he wants to put it. Sanctification 
or God moving furniture around in our life, it often doesn't make sense. It often goes against what we feel. But just because we don't know a lot about it, just because we don't necessarily like the way it feels in the initial moment doesn't mean that it's necessarily wrong. Give God this complete control. So there's the happy Christian, the unhappy Christian, and then there's the others. Those who are pursuing certain aspects of religion and yet they've never pursued a personal relationship with God through Jesus. In many ways, they think that things are just fine the way they are. There's not much need for rearranging. Let's just keep things the way they are. I'll vacuum here and there, tidy up. I'll become better, but nothing really is significant. Nothing's ever significantly needed. And this is the very thing that broke the heart of Jesus Christ. When he looked out at Jerusalem, this is what broke his heart, is they saw no need for him. They rejected him. They see no need for him. They're fine the way that they are, and judgment is coming. And Jesus says, it didn't have to be this way. Jesus came to receive the coming judgment so that you would not have to. My fear, though, is that you're rejecting the one that's come to be rejected for you so that you could be accepted. And in your stubbornness of heart, you're resisting the needed spirit of humility. You're resisting the very help that's come your way. You're, you're refusing. You're refusing to be done with your rebellion and done with your pride. And you're refusing to come to God through Jesus. And so judgment is coming. So we are this morning the city of Jerusalem, and we have heard, we have the opportunity to respond, what will we do with it? For the Christians, we know that our judgment has already been served on Christ 2,000 years ago. That was the cross. But for those who have rejected the offer of Jesus, being their substitute, taking on the wrath of God and that judgment on himself, your judgment still awaits you. But in the words of Jesus, it doesn't have to be this way. There's those who trust Jesus and there's those who trust in themselves. Those who trust Jesus, they're free from the fear of judgment to come. And they're able to experience a closeness of, with God and a joy when they consider eternity and even death. But when you trust in yourself, you're having to continue to shoulder the weight of the coming judgment. But I want you to hear this morning, maybe this is the last time you're going to hear it in this way. It doesn't have to be this way. Jesus came to earth to make sure it doesn't have to be this way. The whole reason that we have hope of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that's his way, that's the way that's taken place for it not to have to be this way. So this is at the forefront of our minds as we come to the Lord's table this morning for communion. We're coming to the table this morning and we're hearing Christ say through his life, death, and resurrection, we're hearing him say, I told you it didn't have to be that way. I told you, I took care of it. So would you, would you receive Christ this morning? Would you trust his way? Would you receive him on his terms and in this way, don't be like Jerusalem and reject him. Humble yourself. Look into those eyes and trust him with it. Ask him for faith to believe him. So Christian, we're going to come in just a moment to the Lord's table. And as you come, I want you to be telling yourself, it didn't have to be this way. 
So Jesus did this so that it didn't have to be this way. What a joy it is to know this. Dear friends, think through these things. Jesus humbled himself so that it doesn't have to be this way. This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.